was the weekly Sabbath combined. And of course, a high day takes precedence over a weekly Sabbath if it, if it occurs that way. So, uh, tonight's the last night for our six o'clock in the evening. Tomorrow will be our regular Sabbath service time of one o'clock for those of you out on the telephone lines. <clears throat> Whatever time you normally tune in, tomorrow will be the time that we will have. One o'clock our time here. Well, I went to the Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, uh, in the opening sermon on this particular series, and kind of gave an introduction a little bit as to the fact that this is talking about marriage, <clears throat> and that it's not just a sex manual, as some say. And also, uh, I spent a little time explaining that it is the song of songs, the song of all songs, the greatest song in the Bible. So it has great and deep meaning beyond any of the songs of Moses or Miriam or whoever sang songs uh, in the Old Testament. This is the greatest of them, as stated. So it must have very, very deep meaning for us, and there's much that we need to learn from this little book. Now, yes, it does have an awful lot about uh, an intimate relationship, but that is very, very important for us to grasp. Now, from here, with an introduction of the first couple of chapters, as you know, I went through and showed how a bride is to prep herself, uh, what she is to become, what her attitudes are supposed to be toward her husband. Uh, last night in Proverbs 31 about her production, uh, both as a human type here, <clears throat> but the production she should have in the Millennium and Great White Throne Judgment in providing for her children there, which will be millions and millions and ultimately billions in the great white throne judgment. <clears throat> so what training we can get here as kings and priests and as a bride will stand us in good stead then. Obviously, when the change comes, our capacities will be expanded greatly because we can barely take care of a, a little family of three or four or five or six or eight people here in today's society and then you will have millions and millions to look after. So you obviously are going to have to have a whole lot more capacity than you have today in order to fulfill that and to fulfill, and to fulfill it properly. But we went through quite a few scriptures over, what, four more sermons, and uh, I didn't go anywhere near all the scriptures about marriage and marriage relationships and human relationships that are in the book. There's a lot in Deuteronomy, for instance. There's quite a bit in Malachi. <coughs> and all through the New Testament, there are, are more scriptures about the subject. And I was trying to make the point that Christ being the bridegroom and us being the bride is what the whole book is about. That's basically all it addresses from Genesis to Revelation is what Christ is going to do between Adam and Eve and the time he returns to claim his bride. 
the rest is basically just passed over, is it not? There's very, very little said, really, about the millennium. Uh, a few places in Isaiah that give us pretty good insight. But that's about it. And as far as the great white throne judgment, almost nothing. Uh, so just the view that it is there, so that we understand that God has a purpose that He will work out with all people and give them a chance at salvation ultimately. But the whole thrust, the whole flow of the Bible is about those who are being prepared. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others from the Old Testament is listed in Hebrews 11, plus some that aren't even named there, he says. Uh, and those in the early New Testament church, whatever few there may have been through uh, these 2,000 years since then, and especially here at the end when he has called many to finish out the number. So this is all about the Bride of Christ. Now, what is our relationship supposed to be with the Father and with the Son? That is something I've been thinking about some recently in, uh, in trying to comprehend what He wants of us. He describes us as His children. He describes us in terms of Christ as brothers. Uh, he even says He opens friendship to us. Uh, and then, as the bride is being married... And, of course, that is the deepest of all those relationships <clears throat> in those terms. Now, I don't say it's any deeper than between us and the Father, because that also is to be a very, very deep relationship. And we didn't even get into child-rearing and God's attitudes toward His children. And the, all those scriptures about us with our brothers, our fellow bride, or whichever analogy you're using, there are several in the Bible to give us a different view, a different way of looking at our relationship with the Father and the Son. Because in a physical family, you have father, mother, children, siblings, male-to-male, uh, female-to-female, -female, female female-to-male relationships with brothers and sisters, uh, you have friends of family. Uh, you can even have friends within your family at times, <laughs> not always. Uh, and it says that a friend sticks closer than a brother. So there can be friends that aren't members of your immediate family that you can be even closer to in some respects than you can one of your own siblings. So he gives us different relationships there so that we might learn from each one because when we are made spirit and part of the kingdom of God, every one of those relationships will be there. Now, how do you conduct yourself as a brother or sister, as a friend? Quite a few scriptures about how a father pities his children, loves his children, takes his children in his arms. A very, very close relationship is supposed to be between a father and his children. And then we have those between a husband and a wife and how close they should be. And the Song of Songs is the primary one that describes that relationship 
And it is the most intimate relationship that we have among all our relationships. Now, we start talking about some of the things that are in here. Sometimes it makes people a little squeamish and their toes begin to kind of wiggle in their shoes. <clears throat> but remember that God made all this. He made all the parts. He made male and female. He designed it all. Then he put the design to work and created us as living human beings. Uh, he designed it very, very carefully so that the relationship between a husband and wife, the most intimate of them, is that which produces children. And children, then, are a blessing. And what are they? They're a microcosm of us. And we want that kid to look like me. We want it to act like me. We want it to be like its parents. We want it to grow up to be an upstanding citizen. <clears throat> and boy, do we spend a lot of time with those little children after they're born. They become the focus of life. They are held, they are patted, they are fed, they are changed. They are held, they're dandled, they're, they're bounced as they get a little older. They're, uh, our focus is on them, right? So, God made that relationship of that little child, as it grows, the relationship changes and becomes more mature, but God wants the spiritual to reflect what we go through physically. So it is a very intimate relationship we have with our children. The mother nurses the child. She feeds it, and it grows from her own body. That's something God designed naturally. And when they don't get that, they're not as healthy. Uh, they're not as content. They don't bond with the mother as much. And we need to be like a child and a mother. That's the relationship God gives there between the church and the brethren. He says the, the church is the mother of us all. And whether they're little children just baptized, we want to give them all the instruction to help them we can to begin to grow in the spirit, to be mature spiritual adults. I think that the relationship, I know the relationship that God wants us to have with Him is much tighter, much closer, and more intimate than we have thought or that we have achieved. And the Song of Songs will give us some of that. Now this one, for the most part, there's something about sisterhood and, and other relationships in the family toward the end of the book. But it's primarily about husband and wife. And we've seen all through all these scriptures that they're talking about Christ and His bride. Yes, there's instruction to physical, but that pictures the spiritual. And again, Ephesians 5.32 is the pivotal verse. Uh, I, this is a great mystery, but I speak of Christ and the church. So when we come back to the Song of Songs, I wanted to lay all that background with all those scriptures showing what God expects of us as a potential bride, our conduct. And when we get to this one, 
it doesn't have a lot about that part that we found in Titus and Ephesians and Proverbs 31 and, and those other scriptures. What this one is about is primarily emotion and passion and zeal and attitude is what this book is about. So we get away from the everyday instruction of how you treat each other. And here we get into the more passionate side of it. Now Christ expects His bride to have the relationship with Him that is described in this book. It is the Song of Songs because it is the highest relationship that Christ can have with His bride or that man can have with woman as a type of that in a marriage today. And we saw scriptures where if that is used in any other way, it cheapens it. Uh, God says, I didn't go there, flee fornication, because you sin against your own body. And what anything, any physical or intimate sexual relationship outside of marriage cheapens it because it can't have the meaning that a married couple can have. It is a form of recreation, maybe, but recreational does not give you the meaning that God wants it to have. Now, I mean, husband and wife can have recreational intimacy. Uh, That's not a problem, and that's pretty clear in here. But... But the whole thing put together is a spiritual experience, or should be, if done right, with right attitudes within a marriage. So, he says, this is the greatest song. This is one that we need to learn how to relate to Christ with. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now, that's pretty intimate, is it not? When two people kiss, that is a sign of an emotional bond between them, or should be. For your love is better than wine. So he starts out this by saying, Christ wants to be so close that they kiss. Uh, and it's, it goes on and describes a lot of even more uh, interesting things than that as we go through. The Protestants have their little songs about he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own and so on. And uh, some of those are syrupy and maybe they're not something we've adopted. But without the twist that they sometimes put on it, some of those songs indicate the intimacy that Christ wants to have with us. Now, the Protestant songs get selfish uh, to some degree, where it says that none other has ever known this one that I have. Well, Christ is going to do this with 144,000, which is beyond my comprehension to grasp. But the point is, the bridegroom and the bride, married in this case by now, are very intimately kissing. And then it talks about how others would be jealous of this because it is such a good relationship, such a fine one. 
so intimate, so close. Now, God wants us to be close with Him. I've quoted how many times that we need to turn to, to our father and our brother with all our hearts. Well, that's what humans do. They say, I love you with all my heart. I would do anything for you. Whatever you want. You're my bride. You're my husband. Just say it. Sometimes it doesn't stay quite like that after 40 years, but uh, that's the way we start out, is that kind of zeal and intimacy and wanting to be together all the time. Never wanting to be apart. And calling and texting and writing and whatever when apart. And thinking of them when we're apart. Uh, that's the way it starts. And Christ is describing a new marriage here because He wants us to, to feel with Him at all times. That we are an attitude of prayer. Prayer sounds religious, but an attitude of communication with Him at all times. Bringing every thought into His captivity and loving Him with heart, mind, body, and soul. So, it is much more intimate than we might have thought, and we will see that as we proceed here. Uh, she said she was suntanned and dark. Uh, she wanted to be as beautiful as she could for him. Uh, so, her attitude and her zeal was, I want to look the very best I can for you. I want to be the best I can for you. And then she wanted to know where he was going to be at lunch. Uh, so she wanted to be with him, wanted to be there at all times. And I quoted, I think, Jude or wherever that one is. It says that once we rise, maybe it's Thessalonians 4, verse uh, where it says that we'll ever be with him, never part again. Anywhere he goes, we go. And that's the way he wants it. Now, I, help, I think this can help us understand why he spewed us out. Because that kind of zeal, that kind of desire, that kind of hurtful want to be together was not there. It was lukewarm, it was lackadaisical, going through the motions. How intimate were our prayers with Christ or with the Father through Christ? Not as much as He wants. So it was attitude that was the problem. It wasn't necessarily doctrine, though there were some doctrines that needed changed. But he didn't say it was because of doctrine. He said it was because of lack of enthusiasm and zeal and because of lukewarmness in the relationship. He does not want to be, will not be, taken for granted. So he's putting us through it so we do not take him for granted anymore. He wants us to be on fire to be married. You'd really be disappointed if you decided to get married to somebody and came time for the wedding, all the prep was done, and, and the bridegroom's standing there, and the bride comes down the aisle, and he's texting somebody, you know or doesn't want to look at her, or has his mind somewhere else. That would not make her feel loved and wanted, respected, needed, cared for, 
Or if she's going back and forth as she goes down through the aisle saying, Look at me, aren't I beautiful? Aren't I the loveliest thing that you ever saw as a bride? What if her what if she didn't have her mind on the bridegroom standing down there? What if it was on herself? Narcissism. And she's trying to be admired instead of looking at the one she's going to spend the rest of her life with. That would be disconcerting. Might make you want to walk out. Well, that's what we did to Christ. He said, hey, I don't need this. I want somebody to love me with all their heart. I want somebody who's going to be trying to find me at lunch. You don't want to miss a lunch with me. I won't read all this. And then it goes into uh, physical again. Uh, they, she found him for lunch, and then they, they got in the forest with the fir trees and the cedar trees and so on, and they made love underneath the trees. So our bed is green. Uh, and he described some of her physical assets and so on and how he is impressed with them and, and loves to look at them, touch them. Uh, he wants a very intimate relationship. Chapter 2, uh, she, she's described as being a lily among thorns, a flower among the briars. Uh, cactus have beautiful, beautiful, almost neon colors in their flowers. But they got thorns all around. So you can kind of admire them from a distance, but you don't want to touch the, the cactus. Uh, they wanted to be touched. And then like the apple of the eye, and I told you there how he tells us there in Zechariah 2 that the one that he chooses will be the apple of his eye. So wherever you go in Scripture, you'll find some of the imagery that is used here in the description uh, in the prophecies or wherever they might be. Some of these things are repeated. Uh, and then they were lovesick and, and made love again and how he skips upon the mountains and the hills. She had uh, body parts that were as mountains to him and, and southers that were more like hills. Uh, and on and on it goes. And I went through the second chapter to make a point in verses 11 through 14 that it appears he comes to his bride in the springtime uh, when new life is there, when the trees are budding, the, the flowers are coming on, the doves are cooing, they're making nests, uh, the time of new life. And he says, Arise, my love, in the verse 13, my fair one, and come away. And then talks about how he finds her in the secret places of the stairs, the geological formation that is right here that contains Zion. So this is this is right here that we're talking about. It isn't way back. It's it's about here, and him coming to his bride because he says he's going to dwell with us. And then you have to get rid of the Edomites, the foxes that want to eat the crop just as it begins to grow. Said no, uh, he has to protect. And Zechariah two talks about that, him being a wall of fire around to protect from enemies. Isaiah fifty four says, No one that brings trouble against you will succeed, because I will protect you, as a husband should his wife. 
Verse 17 is important. It says, until the day break. We've been in pretty heavy darkness now for some time. And Isaiah 8 talks, or 9 I guess it is, about uh, how the people that have walked in darkness upon them has a light shined. They'll be able to see, and others will see the light of Christ, of God, shining on us as a light to the world. That's what he's going to do with his remnant. Uh, those, that part of the remnant that is a part of his bride. So let's pick it up then in chapter 3 and continue here. Uh, this apparently is a dream. There were a couple in the book. Uh, this is the first dream. She says, By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loves. So as you're engaged or as you are early in marriage, uh, you wake up, you think of each other in the night, uh, you dream of each other. The closeness is there, the, the thought pattern. You know, you think about them through the waking hours, you think about them when you lay down, and then if you wake up, there they are on your mind. That's the way Christ wants us to be. If we're praying, if we're studying, if we're meditating on His ways, he automatically comes to our mind because that's where our mind is. If our mind's on some television show or this or that or the other thing, then that may be where our mind goes. Or if you're a sports freak, uh, you may wake up with batting averages going through your head or whatever, uh, you know. What's your mind on? And right now, that focus needs to be, according to Joel 2, as much as is humanly possible on Christ and what He is starting to do. Uh, everything else pretty much needs to be set aside except that which you must do to earn a living and cook food and, you know, the things that have to be done. But there should be really not much leisure time at this point because we're reaching the critical moment. There's a critical moment mentioned back here a little later we'll get to. So she was frustrated. She couldn't find him. I woke up and he wasn't there. I will rise now and go about the city and the streets and in the broad ways I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. So there's frustration being experienced here. Uh, i, I got to find him. I woke up on my bed. He's not here. Where in the world is he? I, I must go out. I must find him. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, Have you seen him whom my soul loves? That's the position we are in as a church now. Uh, Jeremiah talks about how, in 31, talks about how the watchmen will stand on Mount Ephraim and Zion and tell the people that Christ is coming to Zion, that He's going to be here with us. He's going to be teaching us. He's going to be helping us. Uh, but we can't find him. <laughs> We're having trouble finding him. Where is he? Uh, we wake up from sleep. Maybe we've been asleep a lot of years here. Five of the ten virgins, they all went to sleep. Five woke up and had oil. The other five didn't. So the church and us as the bride are all through here. I mean, I can show you scriptures that we've a lot of them we've already gone to, 
to show you that they fit this. Now we go through here because I want more attitude and approach in what we need to be doing to become as close and intimate with him as we should be, which is what was lacking when we got spewed out. So this, this, is, uh, this isn't 101, this is 401. This, this, this is beyond the elementary. This is into the intimacy that he is after. We didn't just meet. We're not trying to find out where you came from and w what your parents did for a living as you get introduced. This is way beyond that, past the falling, they say, in love, the engagement, and into the marriage, and what ought to be. Now, we're still in the engagement period, but we need to be thinking about what we should be as the bride and coming to feel that way in the engagement time so that when we become the bride, the attitudes are already there. The closeness is already there. So the watchmen were there. She says, It was but a little that I passed from them but I found him whom my soul loves. So the watchman said, well, we haven't seen him. I don't know where he is. He's coming. Christ is coming. But you've got to go find him, girly. <laughs> Didn't know what he says there in Jeremiah? Come and find me. Seek me with all your heart, and I will be found of you. So here, she listens to what the watchmen say. Yeah, we know he's in, he should be found. He's got to be around. You'll find him soon. So go seek. They just tell you what you need to do, then you need to go do it. And it wasn't long after those prophecies were given by the watchmen that she found him. A little, it was but a little that I passed from them but I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go. Now that reminds me of Jacob when he wrestled with Christ the whole night. He would not let go. He clung. He held on with all his might. When two lovers get together, husband and wife, and especially as things are new, Oh, you just can't let go of each other. Got to hold each other all the time. Hold me in your embrace. So, she felt bereaved. She felt without when she woke up. Then she went and found him, and boy, she latched on. I would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house. Now, Jacob hung on. He says, I'm not going to turn you loose till you bless me. Does that sound familiar? We cannot turn Christ loose until he blesses us. He says there, uh, where is it, Isaiah 61, 2, somewhere right in there. He says, give him no rest until he makes these things happen. No rest. Hang on, cling on, don't turn loose. Stay after him. Don't give him a minute's rest like the woman with the unjust judge who 
wanted something, and she just stayed at it and stayed at it till he finally said, Oh, take what you want. Now, he wants that kind of cling attitude. What did Christ have to do with Jacob? He finally touched him in the thigh and put his thigh out of joint because Jacob wouldn't turn loose. And then Jacob limped for the rest of his life as a reminder of how he needed to hang on to Christ and that he would get a blessing if he held on. Now, that's why it says, endure to the end. Don't ever turn loose. Hang in there. And you will be rewarded and blessed, forgiven and immortalized as a bride of Christ. So there's a lot of instruction here about attitude and approach. I would not turn loose till I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. So, the church is the mother of us all, and Christ is in the church. And we need to be within that, recognizing and respecting the mother for what she is there to do, and our husband, then, is connected to the church, since he's the one that founded it as the chief cornerstone, and it is his church, the church of God. So, the bride wants to get mom's house together with the husband. Perfect analogy for Christ, the church, the bride. I charge you, O you daughters of Jerusalem, by the deer and the hinds of the field, that you stir not up nor awake my love till he pleads. Now, that reminds me of several prophecies where he says it's time for him to arise and to go to work. And things of that nature. That he's had his face turned from us. He's not paying any attention, and, and at least figuratively, to us. He's, he's paying close attention and watching for repentance. But the analogy or the imagery is that his face is turned away. So, she doesn't want him disturbed. She wants him to get his rest. She wants him to be at peace. She wants to take care of him as much as she possibly can. <coughs> and yet, she doesn't want him asleep either. She wants him to be clinging to her the way she's, uh, she's clinging to him. So we need to cling. Every to cling peach. We're fruit to Christ. Boy, it's hard to get that peach off the, the seed on a cling. And that's the way God wants it with us, with Him. Or we just will not turn loose. So He is going to wake up and go to work. Do His mighty, His strange and mysterious work. So he's sitting, resting, preparing to get up off the throne, come down here, dwell with us, and go to work. So that's the juncture we're talking about right here. Verse 6 follows it up. Who is this that comes out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke? Where did he tell us to come? To the wilderness. Where did he tell us he would meet us? Secret places of the stairs. Who is this? My beloved, who comes out of the wilderness, with pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant. 
He is a sweet savor to us, and he has told us that our sins have created a stench in his nostrils. And that is not something you want to have. If you're intimate with your mate, and they've been out working on the car, and they've been sweating, and they come in greasy with body odor and dirty and really, really raunchy smelling, you don't really want them to jump in bed with you and start hugging you all over. It just isn't that pleasant. So Christ is pleasant in every way. He is like the perfumed husband who's all bathed, perfumed. We don't use perfume on men, but... uh, all right, cologne then, or aftershaved, or whatever. Or just smells good because he smells clean and soapy. Sometimes that's plenty. But he comes, and he is going to be, in that sense, very appealing to us. Nothing that is off to the nostrils or the eyes or anything else. Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Three score valiant men are about it of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. Solomon feared for his life. He always had guards around. So did David, even though some members of his own home, of his own family, his sons, tried to kill David. One of them defiled all of his wives when he was gone. There was some pretty nasty stuff going on in these kingdoms, so they had to have protection from their enemies. Now, he says there in Matthew 24 that we're going to have enemies from our own brethren, that they'll betray one another and put each other to death. Very clear. So we have enemies within, within the church and outside the church. Christ says he will take care of our enemies. He will not let anybody hurt us. And he'll be a wall of fire or a defense around us when we start doing his work. We don't need it now because there's nobody out here with tanks and guns. But there'll come a time when we do. And he says, I will protect you. So, this is the bed of the king. Christ is the king. And the imagery here is not just of a King Solomon or King David, but of Christ the King and how he is with his bride. So everything about him will be perfect. There won't be anything unattractive or off-smelling or anything else, and there will be no fear in the night. He says, at that point, when we become his bride, we will have no more fear, no more danger. We'll have total security. That's what's being described here. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon, fine wood, carved wood. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. Go back and read Ezekiel and the chariots of fire that Christ is going to have. Uh, it's going to be the finest chariot, far greater than anything Solomon or David ever had. 
we read about that not too long ago when we started through Ezekiel, about the, the wheels and the fire and the lightning and uh, incredible display there. One of those is what Elijah was picked up with. One of those is what Ezekiel was picked up with. I fully believe the two witnesses will be picked up with one of those and taken to a different place on earth every night or every day, and that they will be brought home every night. I didn't grasp that until recently, but I always thought, well, maybe they were on airplanes or whatever, charter, but nobody would let them land in their airports. That wouldn't happen. And the light of the world will be in Zion, Christ's heir with his people. So if they come there every night, the TV cameras, the worldwide communications are going to show them coming back to Zion, to Christ. And that's the only imagery that really fits. If they happen to stay in the Motel 6 in Azerbaijan, uh, that wouldn't point back to Jerusalem and Zion. But if they are taken by chariot of fire instantly, then they can come back at night, be with the church. Wives, if they got them. I don't know how that one's going to work out yet. Uh, so here's the chariot of the king. Well, we've got the chariot of King Emmanuel described in Ezekiel. Then he says, verse 11, Go forth, O you daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals, and in the day of the gladness of his heart. Churches all through the prophecies are described as the daughters of Zion. And he will pick, he will pick one of those to be the chosen daughter of Zion to work through. So he says, go, have a look at Christ. That's what this is about. Your attention is riveted on him. Where is he? Go to him. Don't ignore him. Don't take him for granted. And he is going to give us crowns. But didn't we read scriptures in Isaiah 7 and Micah 4 and other places? Isaiah 60 through 64, 65 even, where it talks about how we are as a, as a woman in travail to bring forth Christ. Well, here it is right here. The days of his espousal and his mother crowning him in the day that he was espoused. So the mother, the church, is to give great deference and glory and honor to Christ. Go to him. Give him that kind of honor. <clears throat> Chapter 4 then. Gets back to the intimate side of it. Behold, you are fair, my love. You are so beautiful to me. Behold, you are fair. Not only are you beautiful, you really are. Behold it. Wow. You have dove's eyes within your locks. Dove has soft, almost sad, beautiful eyes. They're not hard and, and uh, like an eagle's, sharp and hard. They're soft. They're gentle. They're loving. Your hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. 
I'm reminded of flocks of goats I saw in particular in New Zealand because it was just so absolutely green. I mean, there was no brown spot anywhere. Green as far as you could see, no trees on some of those hills. And here were these flocks of pure white Angora-looking goats just sort of moving down through that green. Oh, you talk about beautiful. I stopped and took pictures of that. It was just like a wave of white coming down through that green. That's what he's describing here. He says, your, your hair is like flowing flocks of animals coming down a green hill. He, he just loved to look at her. Well, physically speaking, we're not much to look at anymore. Look at us. But hopefully we're becoming spiritually something that he really wants to see, that he really looks for. If, I, if, if our spiritual condition could be like a flock of goats like her hair, and he just can't wait to be with us. Now we're here trying to get close to him and hoping he'll come and dwell with us, Emmanuel, God with us. But do we turn it around and say, he's just chomping at the bit on his throne, waiting for that moment when he is to come down suddenly to his temple and to put his arms around her as his face looks admiringly upon her. Not turned away, not holding his arms back, but admiring her beauty. Now, there's a challenge for us right there, is to be in attitude and approach and spirituality so close in thought, in attitude to what he is and what he wants that he just can't help but admire us. We don't feel that way yet, do we? I don't. But I aspire to it. I would like to become something he can't keep his eyes off of. Do you ever think of this quite that way before? I never did over the years. I mean, I saw the analogy, but he wants it to be very intimate. She describes him, hey, we got no problem with that because he's all of that. But when he describes her, he's talking about us. we got some living up to do. we got some catching up to do. Your hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which come up from the washing. Sheep can get lumpy. They can have chunks of wool on them. Uh, they can be uh, shedding in the spring and, and uh, just look ragged and ratty. They can look awful. But here he says, you look like those that have just had all the wool sheared off, and it's very, very short, and all smooth and nice. And your teeth are like smooth-looking lambskin. Sight to behold. Beautiful. They come up from the washing. They're, you know, sheep can get really dirty-looking, too. They come in off the, off the uh, range in the fall, they're just brown. 
been rolling in the dirt and the mud all all summer long. And when you shear them off, there's that beauty, and they put them through a dip to get rid of bugs, and then they're pure white, just lovely. They came up from the washing where everyone bears twins, and none is barren among them. So he says, we are to bear. We are not to be barren. Barren was a curse back then, particularly. Now we have people who don't even want kids, but back then, if a woman was barren, that was, oh, that was looked down upon. That was awful, because you're supposed to have kids, and your teeth are like these shorn white animals, and everyone has twins. you got a whole mouth full of beautiful white teeth, he says. Smile for me. I want to see your teeth. Your lips are like a thread of scarlet, and your speech is comely. I love to hear the sound of your voice, and your lips are so kissable I can hardly stand myself. Uh, not, not makeup here in terms of scarlet, but health. They look so moist. They look so delectable. I can't stand it. I just got to kiss you now. And your speech is, oh, like the murmur of a brook in my ear when you tell me these sweet nothings about how much you love me and how handsome I am and and how you want me to hold you and to love you. So he's leading up to that. Your temples are like a piece of pomegranate within your your locks. She just her whole face just shines for him and he loves to see it. She's just beaming. Now doesn't he beam at her? Go back and read Revelation 1. His face shines as the sun in its full glory. And he is radiant for his bride. And here, he wants her to be radiant for him. And of course, when we're changed, we will become glorious as he is glorious. And we'll all shine like the sun. We'll see that down here in a little bit, too. Oh. Uh, Uh, verse 4, your neck is like the Tower of David, builded for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. So they throw it back and forth uh, here. Uh, she describes his neck like the Tower of David, had a thick, solid neck. He wasn't a hundred-pound weakling. And, you know, that's the way they try to describe Christ. No, no, listen to the description here. Uh, he's he's strong. He's mighty. He's not a petulant little girly boy like people think. Well, there's a lot of instruction here. Then he says, your two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. You know, I, just as I look back, maybe she's from chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, describing him. Uh, it could go either way, the teeth, the, so on. But it talks about the neck, and that, that I think, is looked back on it as the way I'd understood that before. But then it turns, and he describes her, your lilies. Have you been out in the forest right after the, the deer are born in the spring, May, 1st of June, and everything has turned green, and you have these little spotted fawns? They're the cutest things you'll ever see. 
delicate, tender, uh, sweet, unafraid, just beautiful. He says, that's what your breasts look like to me. They're twins which feed among the lilies. Until the daybreak and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense, uh, which is somewhat south of her breasts. You are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. He says, you're just delectable from the head to toe. I just can't get enough of this. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Look from the top of a manna. That's not the freezer. That was a mountain. And it is. From the top of Shinir and Hermon. I believe I know where Hermon is for sure. It's that Cedar Mountain. Just You go up to the turnout up there and you look right down on Zion because the psalm says that the dew of Hermon settles down on Mount Zion. So I think that is clearly Mount Zion. In the Middle East, it's 80 miles away, and the view from Hermon never, never, ever gets to what they call Zion at Jerusalem. So he's saying, I'm taking you to the high peaks. Our love is so wonderful and so great that uh, we're going for the snow caps, baby, is what he's describing here. It's a very intimate situation. So let's, uh, let's ascend to the mountaintop, shall we? Verse 9, You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. He's our elder brother. We're his sister, if we're female. Uh, it kind of flows together here, using a little bit different analogy. So, uh, you've ravished my heart. You have ravished my heart, he repeats with one of your eyes, with one chain of your neck. All you have to do is look at me with one eye, and I'm, I'm done. Man, this, that's all I can take. Uh, Got to have you. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse? Going back to describing her, it's just like they're laying in bed side by side, passing compliments back and forth, one to the other, about how uh, inspiring and how delectable and how desirable each is to the other. That's a, that's a very intimate pillow talk that we're doing here. Now let's not forget, this isn't just physical. This is the relationship Christ wants with you. This close. This intimate. And he describes it in very, very intimate detail because he wants us to get this picture. That's the reason it's in the Bible, is for us to get the picture. Now, the other disciples saw the intimate relationship, the closeness that Christ had with John. And and John was the one that felt comfortable enough with him, man to man, that if Christ was leaned against the tree, John would come and lean back on his chest. They were that close without being weird. We always have to throw that in because it was, it was just a man-to-man bromance, <laughs> if you will. But the other disciples were not quite as close to Christ as John was. And remember there at the Passover when... Uh, he said, one of you is going to betray me. Peter was afraid to ask. He said, hey, John, 
You asked him. Who is it? John was that close. And he turned. Didn't bother him. Who is it? (laughs) You know? Now, John wrote an epistle, Book of John, that has more about love in it than all the other three combined. And then if you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that's essentially all it is about. The intimacy, the closeness, the love that we need to feel to Christ and to one another. And He takes it from the Father and the Son and lays it on us in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So He had that very, very tight, close, personal relationship And Christ wants us all to have that. Now, how do you get there? Through a lot of prayer, through a lot of reading the words, maybe through going back and reading this book. You don't read it very often, neither do I. Do you? Uh, No. It's almost forgotten back here, that little song of songs. Oh, that's about sex, forget it. No, 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 no. This is about relationship. This is about closeness and intimacy with spirit being, the Father, or beings, Father and the Son. Particularly here about the Son and the Bride. How fair is your love, how beautiful it is to hold you and to be intimate with you, my sister, my spouse. How much better is your love than wine? and the smell of your ointments than all spices. You just are so sweet-smelling to me, and your kisses are better than the finest wine. I, I, oh, I'm ravished, I'm ravished, he says. Your lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. What uh, I guess is generally known as French kissing. They didn't just kind of peck each other on the lips. He had his tongue under her tongue, and it tasted sweet. And uh, boy, there are a lot of nerves around the tongue and under the tongue and in the mouth. Uh, And you shouldn't kiss like that unless you're married. The smell of your garments is like the smell of Lebanon. Just everything about you, your body, the clothes. uh, Wash your pajamas once in a while, if you wear any. Verse 12, a garden enclosed or barred is my sister, my spouse. Spouse. So he's saying, everyone else is excluded from this relationship. This is precious. It is intimate. It is ours. No one else goes there. <clears throat> he goes on. Now, walled up or barred up means no one else is allowed access. Then he describes... Uh, a garden encloses my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. This is speaking of the waterworks down toward the, the bottom of the, the trunk of the body, uh, where the, the action is sexually, to be quite blunt about it. It's, everyone else is barred from that area, but there is a spring there, a spring that he loved. The waterworks. Uh, a fountain sealed. From anyone else. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor with spikenard. So he's talking about that area of her body uh, between the thighs. 
spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices. A fountain of gardens, so he's still speaking, the same place. A well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. So that part of the body is where she, they have their intimacy of intimate intercourse. It's where children are planted. It's where life springs forth, where a baby is born, and you have a child that is part of each of you. There shouldn't be anybody else there. This is, this is how we make babies together that are just ours. There's no other father. They say sometimes in this world, who's, who's your daddy? Well, only mama knows for sure. Well, that's a travesty. There shouldn't be any question. No one else would ever be allowed there. And therefore, it's your baby. See why adultery and fornication is so bad? A fountain, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come you south. Blow up on my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Well, this is intimacy. There's foreplay here. And she begins to uh, lubricate. The, the fluids start coming to prepare for an intimate relationship here. So he says, we might start at the top with some kisses and, and your breasts are, are wonderful, but we're getting down here now to the kind of foreplay that makes things get even more exciting. This is Christ and his bride now. This, is, this isn't pornography. This is what he wants. This is how close he wants to be with you and me. And we've got to figure out some way to become what he wants to look at and to hold and to love as intimately as is possible. It's what it's all about. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Uh, some people are against oral, some are for it, some like it, some don't. There are several places in here that that seems to be indicated. And my view on that is you both better enjoy whatever it is in the intimate relationship uh, that you do because there are no limits anywhere in the Bible. I don't care what men think. Uh, there were evangelists, and they preached it, some of them. Some would say oral sex is taboo, it's perversion. And others would say, there's nothing in the Scripture says that. Whatever you enjoy between yourselves, enjoy. There's only one censorship that God puts on us. He makes it very, very clear that the bung is not a sex organ. The anus is not a sex organ. I don't care what homosexuals or anybody else want to tell you. He's made other things that are better for sex than that. And he says, no, period. But he doesn't say that about anything else. 
So let your imagination be your guide beyond that, and be sure you both enjoy whatever it is you decide to do. But I think that there are some indications in here. This is maybe one, but I'll show you another one a little bit that's even more so. Chapter 5. I came into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my milk. I've imbibed of and tasted everything there is to taste and enjoyed it. Eat, O friends. Drink, yes, drink abundantly, O beloved. So he's saying, I'm setting an example here for you. Uh, My friends, this is the way it is between me and my wife, and you all ought to get here on a physical level, and I know this is the ideal, and I understand that. And because, as I said before, of abuses, of misuses, of loose morals, of religious teaching, of all kinds of things that can affect people's attitudes, What we are talking here is that if a couple have not been taught wrong, have not been abused, have not uh, been loose morally, and they get together as virgins is what God expects of married couples. They're not supposed to get together and have sex before marriage. It says no fornicator will enter the kingdom. No adulterer will enter the kingdom. If people have done those things, they need to repent of it so that it no longer remains. But this is such a special, close, intimate relationship that everyone else is barred. Christ wants his bride to be pure and clean and with the white garments of righteousness, unspoiled, That's why he says that the 144,000 are virgins. And why he says of the Corinthians, their sins are forgiven. And despite their immorality, they are presented as chaste virgins to Christ. So it's a spiritual connotation. But if we as human beings would from the first do it right handle things properly, and be virgins on our wedding night, the intimacy, the closeness, would be something that has never been shared with anyone else. And you don't know about anybody else. There's a scripture that says that you're not supposed to discover her secret. When you marry a bride, no one else should know how she is in bed, in other words. They shouldn't know the look that comes on her face when a sexual climax is reached. The only one that should know that is her husband. Those aren't just rules there about don't have sex before marriage or outside of marriage. There's so much spiritual meaning here that if we could grasp that, maybe we wouldn't be so inclined to throw it around like Israel did and got divorced. Christ says, I can't. I'm not going to handle that. You be true to me, or you get divorced. So he says, this is just between me and her, but you look at how we get along, and you you do it the way we do it. 
Now, everybody's not going to physically, as I say, live up to this ideal in this life. But if you are limited in your capacity because of any of those or other factors, you need to get there spiritually to where this kind of intimacy is between us and our husband-to-be. Now, it won't be fully grasped, understood, and consummated until the marriage, right? We're only engaged at this point. But we're supposed to be focused in, zeroed in on Him, getting as close to Him, as close to the way His mind works, as close to His thought patterns as we can, so that then when we're changed and stand on that sea of glass and marry Him, pictured by the Day of Atonement, becoming at one, like a husband and wife, conservate the marriage, then will be what is being described here. We can't spiritually get quite there now, but we need to be working that direction to be thinking like he thinks, walking as he walked, doing as he did. And then, when we are changed and are of like kind with him, we can have, on a spiritual level, what this is describing on a physical level. So since the physical marriage represents the spiritual marriage, if we do everything right here, and we are as close as we can possibly get, and this kind of intimacy is what is there to draw a husband and wife together. And when they're joined in sex, that makes them one body. They're no longer two, he says, but one. That's how close. Christ wants to be at one with his bride. And that excludes everybody else. 144,000, no more. You and your husband or your wife, everybody else out, no more. This pictures Christ and his church, Christ and his bride. And my marriage then has to reflect that and be a type of that. And we need to be, as husband and wife, physically as close together as we can get. And it's exclusive. None of these open marriages or, you know, all that stuff. There's a reason that Satan puts all of that stuff in front of us and makes it common and cheap and easy to go there. And pornography just permeates the world because he wants to cheapen what God intended to be so special. not shared with anyone. Uh, she gets into the second dream here, so maybe that's, time-wise, a good place for us to stop, and we can finish this tomorrow.